Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Josh Marshall podcast. We have uh, two very different things we're gonna we're gonna talk about today. We actually have three, but it's the two or the big ones. We're gonna talk about this ongoing story of this Madison Cawthorn guy, right? This this kind of like man boy representative from from North Carolina. You know, one of that group of you know high profile Republican QAnon adjacent kind of dudes. Uh, not all dudes. I, arguably the most prominent one is uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, I'm remembering her name right. And, uh, you know, Bo Bird out in, out in Colorado. Uh, in any case, you know, as, as, uh, as we know, these, these, these folks say crazy things all the time. I just noticed uh, yesterday I saw a clip that Marjorie Greene was saying the kind of stuff that if you, you know, if you map it to a very different culture, is the sort of the kind of things that you you saw were you know being said in Rwanda before like the genocide this kind of thing democrats are the party of pedophiles they're coming for your underage kids to transition them into uh you know being being trans and you know this this kind of the kind of dehumanizing rhetoric that preps people for like war crimes and crazy crazy not just there's crazy stuff right you can you can you can you can say crazy stuff but they aren't all adjacent to like mass killing this was both and these folks say this kind of stuff all the time and as we know it doesn't matter right you've got this i guess gosar was was he stripped of his committee assignment i can't remember um, in any case, you know, we've been through this round a few times and these people say all sorts of horrific stuff and it, and it doesn't matter. They get basically, you know, overwhelming support from their caucus and all that kind of stuff. And yet this time, this, this Cawthorn guy was on some, you know, kind of right wing podcast and said kind of not even, you know, I'm not sure he said it in passing, but not even kind of like as the biggest deal he was talking about. Well, you know, I'm up here and everybody's kind of you know, corrupt and sleazy. And obviously, you know, they invite me to their sex parties and, you know, to snort cocaine and everything. And, you know, there were some details and, you know, kind of uh, drug language and all this kind of stuff. And suddenly that was a step too far. The sort of the backbench Republicans in the House, the people who you can all, you know, the sort of the silent majority that are the ones who are saying, hey, thumbs up on that uh, thing about, you know, um, uh, Pizzagate or what I'm losing track of all the, all, the, all the different stuff. They were like, dude, we're done with you. It's too much. You can't do that. And, uh, you know, Kevin McCarthy said he'd lost trust in him. And uh, Tom Tillis, who is the uh, senator from North Carolina, came out in favor of a, a primary challenger, Republican primary challenger to Cawthorn. And that's the kind of thing that can get you run out of office. That's a very conservative district. So he's not gonna, he's not gonna get beaten by a Democrat. But so the point is, it is his future, his political career is on the line. And what he said was 
<laughs> At least my sense of it was so absurd as almost to not require a response. That kind of like, you know, well-known Republicans in their 70s who he had admired all his life, they're now inviting him to swingers parties. You know, Madison, who's like 26 or something like this, and like, you know, uh, uh, Representative John Doe, who's 74, and his, and his, you know, whatever. But that is the thing. So we're going to talk about that and what is up with that. And it's, it seems like it's maybe kind of calmed down now. You know, Cawthorn put out the sort of the, you know, the prescribed statement basically saying, you know, enough of the left and the media uh, trying to say that my uh, colleagues are uh, perverts and drug addicts like I said they were. Uh, something like that. So we're, we're going to talk about that. Um, and then we're going to talk about um, the ongoing situation in Ukraine, which is which has been the sort of the focus of a lot of my attention over the last uh, uh, few weeks. And, and as you probably know, the conventional war has, for a while, the idea was that it had stalemated. In fact, the Russians are now largely, the Russian army is now largely retreating, repositioning away from, you know, its sort of maximal goals to uh, put all their forces basically in the east in this area called the Donbass. Uh, and there's sort of a race now kind of for both armies to get over there. And that's where the kind of the, you know, the, the, uh, the battle is going to be. But then we've, as the, as the Russian army has withdrawn, we have seen what seems to be pretty clear evidence of mass killings during the period when when Russia was occupying you know significant sections of Ukraine uh and that has uh you know opened a new dimension of this of this uh conflict so we're going to talk about that too and we're going to talk about some some court stuff the ongoing follies of the of the Roberts uh, court, which, as we'll discuss, is interesting, not even clearly like the Roberts court anymore. He's become a critic in his own, you know, uh, chief justiceship. Uh, but before we get to that, let me remind you that uh, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is sponsor of the Josh Marshall podcast. Ah, it's spring. Your nose is running, your eyes are watering, and you can't stop sneezing. But the real first sign of spring is the feverish return of your iced coffee cravings. And if you blew through your summer iced coffee budget before the first 80-degree day, that coffee addiction is like an itch you can't scratch. Well, Grady's Cold Brew has just what the doctor ordered. Each all-in-one cold brew beanbag kit makes 36 cups of craving-quenching iced coffee for less than a buck a cup. Ready to sip your way through spring without the guilt of $6 iced coffees? Of course you are. Go to Grady'sColdBrew.com and save 25% with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com and get 25% off with promo code TPM. Okay, uh, co-host Kate Riga, what are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about Madison Cawthorn again. You know, Something that's kind of interesting about this situation to me is that now we have we have lots of examples of how McCarthy deals with, you know, these people that say egregious things, but obviously have merit to the party, whether that be in, you know, fundraising or riling up that part of the base or what have you. Um, it was kind of interesting to me that in this case, McCarthy addressed it somewhat more quickly and directly than he has with, you know, whatever chapter of Marjorie Taylor Greene's Nazi stuff we're on now, or, you know, same with Gosar. I mean, he said something that, you know, Cawthorn had lost his trust and stuff like that. And I've been wondering kind of what is the, what's the dividing line there? What makes Cawthorn less valuable than, you know, Gosar or Green? And I think to some degree, it's it is monetary because Cawthorn brings in a lot of money, but he's been burning it at kind of ridiculous rates on stuff like travel, which is funny because, like you say, he's in an R plus nine district per the Cook political report. So you know he's not in one of these places where you know Senate equivalent is you got to visit every county and knock on every door kind of thing. Um, and I think there have also just his line of scandals is a little bit different than, say, Marjorie Greene's, you know, because hers are more saying heinous stuff that she and a good chunk of the Republican base believe. So you kind right. of have to do the little, 
I'm distancing myself. I I don't support Nazis kind of thing. Right. This stuff has been a bit more silly, you know, like lying about what schools he was admitted to or saying he worked for Mark Meadows when he only kind of did. Or do you remember that? That early on thing where he said that when he got into his accident that left him paralyzed, his friend left him to die. And it turns out his friend actually pulled him from the wreckage. But his stuff like that has, I think, I think that's the difference. It's been less, you know, we need someone to be the bullhorn to attract this part of the base and more just stepping in it time and time and time again. I guess there was also there was also a thing where like he said that it was his injury that left him paralyzed that he like his basically he didn't get into I don't know if it was West Point or one of the military academies because of that, um, you know, that maybe they withdrew their acceptance or something like that, that, you know, part of his personal story where in fact, he had already been rejected before the accident even happened. And, you know, some he would not be the only politician who you know, fiddles with the timeline to create a more, you know, dramatic story. Sometimes, sometimes people actually remake their stories in their own head. They even come to believe them. Um, I mean, but I guess the, what the real explanation, I mean, with all of these other people, it's always like, we don't care what they say, because we are never going to say anything a Republican said is bad because that's not how we roll. Whatever they say is okay. And it was just so night and day. And the idea has been that, you know, the rule is you can say whatever you want about Democrats, Mm -hmm. but that he was talking about Republicans. Exactly. And that made all the difference. And he didn't, I went back and looked because I was curious about this. I mean, I, I kind of Often I find out about these stories with the with the blow up rather than what was actually said in the, in the first instance. And he never said Republicans, but he talked about people who he had admired all his life, and you know admired. So it was clear, implicitly, it was pretty clear that he was talking about a you know Republicans who who invited him to the swingers parties. And again, through all of this, you're sort of like is. <laughs> Is there anything to this? Is this just kind of, you know, just just purely making it up out of whole cloth? Uh, it's 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 a bit of <laughs> it, it. It kind of, you know, I, I scratch my head over it because um, it, you know, in, it, accusing your own colleagues, your partisan colleagues of of doing bad things isn't isn't um, isn't the most obvious thing in the world that you would do. Um, so where does that come from, right? Did a sta- you know who knows what it was about? But the key is you don't you don't accuse Republicans, and that is the entire thing. You can say anything you want. You can say Democrats are pedophiles. You can say they're part of the world Jewish conspiracy. Blah 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 blah. You don't say anything about Republicans, and I guess um, you know the key there is that the eliminationist QAnon worldview is based on the idea that you're going to have to kill all the Democrats eventually because they're all sex perverts who want to abuse your children, capture your children, sex traffic them to, you know, I don't know if it's San Francisco or Provincetown or even just Boston, but somewhere where a lot of Democrats will abuse them sexually. That's the QAnon thing. So they've already prepped their community for this idea that the hidden elites not only control your world, but want to capture your, you know, your prepubescent children and sex traffic them. And suddenly here's Madison kind of like, oh my God, maybe it's the Republicans are part of it too. So the point being that they're they're pretty primed so that, that this is uh, dangerous for them. But even, you know, even that doesn't quite get me there because like, I mean, <laughs> I was going to say like, who's going to believe that? But I mean, who am I kidding? I mean, have, you know, have I seen the QAnon stuff? So I don't know. What, what's your, what's your sense of that part of it? No, I think that's right. And I think in particular, the fact that had he said that about Democrats, it would tie in so neatly with the narrative they've been doing lately is just angering <laughs> for, for the Republicans, I think. And this is part of why we wanted to talk about the Cawthorn kerfuffle, just because it 
the last few weeks, really since the Katanji Brown Jackson hearings with that whole, you know, the child pornography line of attack, it has come to the fore how completely committed those on the right wing are to, you know, there's a, you can swing back and forth, which makes it easier for them. You can accuse people of pedophilia outright, you know, or you can kind of do gradients remove to say they're propping up child sex offenders or they're lenient on child yeah. sex offenders or they're not as morally offended as they should be, you know, and that works well because then you have deniability. Can, exactly. Because no one's no one's going to say it's a it's, you know, we have to we have to see the nuance in it, you know. <laughs> exactly. Let, let, let me, you know, let me just to your point, let me read this quote. You know, I mentioned yeah. before for for our listeners that uh, Marjorie Marjorie Green made this I this is just a clip on, you know, one of the endless number of far right uh, cable networks that I've never seen. I only see them as clips that researchers find somewhere. But here's what she said. The Democrats are the party of pedophiles, the party of princess predators from Disney, the party of teachers trying to transition their elementary school aged children. Now, again, this is kind of, this is like pre-genocide talk. This is how you talk about people who are so beyond the moral pale, so dangerous, so threatening to what is most protected in our society, the innocence and safety of children, that what can you do? You, you can't, not only can you not politically compromise with these people, these people are, they're not even people. And this is, this is a member of Congress. And, and this is, uh, you know, I, I saw this, I saw this clip posted yesterday by, you know, one of the many researchers that are, you know, um, on, on Twitter. So presumably it was said sometime in the last 36 hours or something like that. Uh, is there going to be some, I mean, we know, we know there's not going to be some outrage over it because what, you know, it, it takes two to outrage. No one's going to put in the time to be outraged if they are not going to get a response from the people who have something they can do about it, right? No one's going to, no one's, no Republican in the House is going gonna, is gonna to stand up and denounce Marjorie Green. So on the other side, who's going to, you know, yeah, people be outraged on Twitter and say this, that, and the other, you know, it's, it's a, it's a bad, it's a bad situation. Yeah. And she's playing an important role in kind of the fungibility of the conspiracy theory. You know, she's the one who's willing to go full out to call people pedophiles, you know, and then it's like one gradient removed. You have some people from the Federalist who have been saying things like Mitt Romney didn't support Jackson for the D.C. district or for the D.C. circuit. You know, he only now supports her after more information has come out with about her leniency with child sex offenders, you know, interesting. Hmm. Like, what does that indicate? You know, and then you've got on the fur further down the gradient, you know, your Hollies and your cruises who are saying, you know, she's a good person. She's a mother. We're just saying there's a pattern here of leniency with child sex offenders. And then it's just kind of, and then you also have Holly who conflates dismissal with the conspiracy theory with dismissal of these sex crimes in general. He's saying people are saying that, you know, child sex predation is a is a conspiracy theory, that it's not real. Of course, that's not what people are saying, right? But it's the fungibility of that gives everybody a spot where they can still have plausible deniability. And they're all driving at the same thing, which is, as you say, Democrats are either pedophiles or pedophile coddlers and definite pedophiles are gay people, trans people, anyone who has access to your children, you know, and as we're talking about this, especially in kind of the LGBTQ space is not a new tactic at all to say that gay people are a threat to children. And that's why punitive action needs to be taken. So, you know, it's really just developed quickly in a way that has space for everybody in the new Republican Party almost. Um, and it's, it is startling how yeah, and fully it's bled in from what started as a very fringy QAnon kind of view of the world. Yeah, no, and it as as absolutely as you say, and it, and it, and it really is. You know, there is this history, and I think we I think we talked about it yeah. on the show last week. I don't know if it was the week before that. That uh, you, you know, for decades, this was the centerpiece 
of anti-gay politics in this country. There was a, you know, a, a, a famous uh, proposition in, you know, referendum in California at some point in the mid-70s. I think it was maybe 1976. I could be wrong by, by two years. But basically, in some sense or another, banning uh, gay people from being teachers. Again, the same basic idea. They're gonna they're gonna make your kids gay. They're gonna expose you to expose them to deviant sexuality. Blah 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 blah. Um, so there's that. You know there is that long history, and in some ways, it's funny that it it is expanded to just all Democrats. This isn't about gays. It's just your being a Democrat means you are sexually deviant and a danger to children. And again, I, you know, we, we've said it a million times, but like that crazy stuff you were hearing about with QAnon three years ago, the totally crazy stuff that all the Republicans said, oh, this is just some crazy thing on the internet. It has nothing to do with us. It is now almost like the doctrine of the Republican Party. And as Kate says, sort of, um, you know, with, with this gradient that is created. So that if you are a Ted Cruz or a Josh Hawley, there's a way that you can that you can get in on it without saying that a specific person that that Judge Jackson is a pedophile, but she's she's on the pedophiles team. And it's, you know, it's 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 mainstream. And it's I mean, mainstream a, Republicanism. A glaring part of it that is hard to ignore is that, you know, if Democrats, if you flip the script and it's Democrats accusing Republicans of this, you know, caveat, obviously, majority of Republicans are horrified by crimes against children. But you would have a lot more data points of recent high profile cases where you had a Republican lawmaker involved in, uh, you know, harm against children than Democrats. And it does, it feels a little bit like that thing of, always kind of accusing the other person of what you're actually doing. You know, that was a, a classic Trump move. But, you know, Dennis Hastart was not that long ago. You have Jim Jordan and the wrestlers at OSU. Um, there was one that was kind of circulating on Twitter yesterday. I don't know if you saw it. I think it's a, a state lawmaker from Tennessee whose wife is like 30 years younger than him and who it seems that he met through being on the board for some kind of thing she was involved in in high school. And they're just plentiful things like that, which do make it a little more startling when you're going to hurl this kind of an accusation yeah. at someone. I mean, you want to have a clean house, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, obviously, you know, I'm kind of reminded of the thing with, you know, voter fraud accusations. In that case, I mean, in that case, it really, I mean, it's sort of like you said, I'm not sure there's more high profile cases, but when you make it the centerpiece of your politics, you know, child sexual abuse, you really should have a, you know, totally clean slate. But with voter fraud, it actually really seems like, wow, high profile Republicans really commit voter fraud a lot. Vote, you know, voting multiple times, voting in multiple states and in, in a single election, uh, you know, voting for their dead parent because they really, really, really like Trump. So maybe that's okay. With the, I mean, I, 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 it's not that I forgot about it, but you reminded me about Dennis Hastert. I mean, Good Lord. Mm -hmm. Good Lord. I mean, this isn't about, uh, you know, Matt Gates. you know, maybe had sex with someone who was 17, right? This is the fucking Speaker of the House for like, I don't know, what was it, 12 years or something? I mean, a really long tenure for Speaker of the House was a long-term child sexual abuser. I mean, wow. I mean, you know, I, where where do you go with that? I mean, yeah. the, we, if that if that were a Democrat, we would be talking about that in the twenty two hundreds. I mean, oh my God, you know, and 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 uh, and yet, and yet here we are. It's something else I've been wondering about this is, I mean, I think it does work on multiple levels, but I do wonder if one of those levels is a rebuttal to kind of Democrats' concern about sexual assault and harassment that has put Republicans in a in a bit of a weird position because they have kind of adopted the position that it's fine. I mean, after Trump, what else are you going to do? You can't really pretend to care about it at that point, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which even if that's the belief, that can be a 
publicly untenable position to hold. So this is kind of a convenient way of adding a rebuttal to that, to when Democrats say, you know, Republicans don't care about Me Too, Republicans don't care about sexual assault or harassment allegations. They can say, well, Democrats don't care about children getting sexually abused, you know, and I I haven't seen it in that clear cut of terms, but I Mm -hmm. have been wondering if that's kind of part of the whole rubber band ball here. It's possible. It's 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 interesting. I mean, my my sense is that it is that's not where I th- I think the center of gravity is. I think this is something much more basic and something with a much deeper um, pedigree in American history, which is the good people, the pure people, the people who do the right things against the deviants and the outsiders and the people who bring sexual shame and all, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's a very kind of Manichaean worldview that that, that is, that is a, you know, deep in American history, sexual perversion, um, and, and that stain and that danger. And, and, um, it's, it's something that preps people for treating other people like they're not fully human. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my sense is, is that it is, this isn't something for kind of, you know, leveling the playing field because, you know, because we're not that serious about harassment. This is something more, you know, this this is something that comes out of the world of of traditionalist evangelical Christianity, not exclusively from there, but it's a Manichaean worldview that, in this specific case is about child sexual predation, but is part of that more general thing. That's my sense. Yeah. I mean, when I was kind of talking to conspiracy theory researchers back in like 2017 or 2018, when QAnon was fresh on the scene about it, it was interesting. They were talking about how in the myth building of the QAnon universe, they're pulling on these ancient, fully ancient taboos to create the narrative that, you know, their political enemies are not just their opponents, but are foundationally evil. And that even though it's kind of the child abuse thing that's come most to light, there was also stuff about eating children and satanic sacrifices and drinking blood. And that stuff goes back centuries and centuries to be an indicator of, you know, pure, unadulterated evil. So, yeah, like you say, there is kind of a very rich vein in tapping into that to show that this person is evil incarnate. Yeah, and that's why I think there's a there's at least a big dimension of this that that comes out of evangelical Christianity is a very wide spectrum of a lot of different stuff, but the politics of traditionalist largely white evangelical Christianity has a tendency to, again, this very kind of Manichaean forces of light, forces of darkness thing. And, uh, you know, this, um, this comes out of there. It's being sort of, you know, painted with the brush of child sexual abuse, but it's that forces of light, forces of darkness kind of kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, talking over (laughs) struggles for good versus evil, let's dip into the Supreme Court briefly, um, where there was an interesting case that I just, I wanted to get on everyone's radar from this morning. It was a shadow docket decision where the conservative majority basically unblocked a Trump era EPA rule that makes it easier to get permits for projects that could pollute waterways. Um, So they you know, a lower court said, no, we're blocking that rule. We're not doing that anymore. The Supreme Court intervenes and says that rule can stand while the court, while the case wends its way through the appeals system. They did this in the shadow docket. So there's no majority opinion. All we have to go on is a dissent, which is Kagan, Sotomayor and Breyer plus John Roberts. Okay. So anytime that John Roberts kind of joins the dissent of late, when he joins with the liberals in dissent, it's notable. But in this case, more so because the dissent included a critique of the conservative majority's very frequent use of the shadow docket. You know, Kagan basically says, we have a threshold you have to meet when you need, when you're asking for a stay while the case is live, you know, before it's gone through the appellate court. They didn't meet that standard, which means that this docket is no longer for emergencies. It's for projecting 
how this court would rule on the merits before it gets there, you know. Um, now, tell, let's let's back up. Explain for our listeners what is the shadow docket. This is every we keep talking about this, but what exactly is it? What are the mechanics of this? Right. So basically, what it's made for is a forum for a decision from the Supreme Court that requires a haste that can't be achieved through the usual course of oral arguments and briefings and, you know, consideration and draft opinions and all that, what the court usually goes through. And we're talking things like appeals from death row inmates to stop their execution, you know, stuff that has to be done quickly. But what it's become, especially with this conservative supermajority, is basically a way to sidestep any public scrutiny that would come with, you know, oral arguments, which are you can listen to from the public and people write about, and instead just hand down a decision often silently. Now, what you just said there, does that, but in all or many of these cases, there will eventually be or may eventually be, you know, pleadings and briefs and all that kind of stuff. So is it, so it's not, it doesn't permanently do that. It just sort of, um, what does it do in the short term? So let, let, let's, let's, let's create a hypothetical where, okay, lower court did X. Uh, the majority on the Supreme Court presumably doesn't like X. So uh, they jump in and do what? So what they've been doing is jumping in and blocking that lower court opinion. Basically, jumping the process ahead of what it usually has to go through before it gets to the court to intervene early. So and, and so basically, okay, so let's say let's say this is you said, you know, this is an environmental ruling. In this case, maybe a lower court says, okay, you can't dump the you can't dump the coal into the river. And normally the coal company would say, oh, that's not fair. I'm going to take it to the circuit court. And then, you know, maybe you're going to take it to the Supreme Court. And so what's happening here is the Supreme Court jumps in and says, okay, you know, while you're going through that process, you can keep dumping the coal. Right. And we'll kind of see what happens. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. So a recent case that is maybe even more illustrative of this dynamic is that in, in February, the court, the Supreme Court stepped in and halted a lower court ruling that would have made Alabama redraw its congressional maps because the maps were found to disenfranchise black voters. And I think it just it highlights like the way this is supposed to work is the Supreme Court is only really supposed to jump in if there's a big division in opinion in, among the lower courts or some question of interpretation that the lower courts are differing from themselves. And, you know, that's kind of one of its foundational jobs is to clear up matters that lower courts are split on. So jumping into the process before it gets to the appeal before the appeals court says whether or not it dis, it agrees with the lower court is just totally kind of upending the system in this way that also to your point when it's not a final decision basically is like hey you know lawyers and and red states involved in these cases we agree with you so plug on you know and if the appellate court rules against you just send it up to us. And here we're giving you an inclination that like, wink, wink, you know, we'll, we'll agree with you. And presumably in the case of that Alabama redistricting mm-hmm. case, you got the 2022 election coming up. So totally. it's, so it, they have made a decision for the 2022 election. Like in theory, maybe it would be changed in 2024, they could redo it, but I guess they've already, yeah. Now when they take this step, mm-hmm. there's nothing preventing them from writing up a little two paragraph opinion says, Hey, here's why we think this doesn't cut it and blah, 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 blah. Catch in two years when we actually formally do this. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the, the, the dissent, right. they did his dissent, so they could, they, they clearly think they're accomplishing something by just like, we're not even going to get into it. Exactly. Well, I think because it it shields them from scrutiny and especially on cases that are more politically motivated than by any kind of earnest disagreement and interpretation of the Constitution or what have you. And, you know, a, a, an interesting thing about the Alabama case is Kagan wrote the dissent then, too, and it was, you know, scathing and it was talking about how and it, the lower court's dealings with this case were extensive and wrote it a really, really long opinion at the end. And they brought in special masters and they looked at the data and it was very, very extensive. And so she was basically saying, 
this is just disrespectful to how our system works, you know, because the lower court did everything right. They were fastidious in their work on this case. And now we're just the Supreme Court is jumping in to say, nah, we disagree without a word about why they differ so strongly. And it's funny because the only member of the majority who wrote was Kavanaugh, who wrote a concurring opinion, which is funny, a concurring opinion opinion with no with majority opinion, opinion. Right, so right, concurring right. with the silence where but the entire thing is basically whining about kagan's dissent nothing is about the merits his big defense is saying well we haven't decided on the merits yet so we're allowed to do this you know blah blah blah. he has a one line he like huffs that her shadow docket critiques are are catchy but you know worn out by this point kind of thing so it's just it was funny to me that that roused him to anger enough to write but he wouldn't even kind of deign to do a single paragraph about why on the merits the majority thinks that the lower court was wrong here you know so that's kind of the system we're in right now and and so there are uh statistics that this practice has grown dramatically over the last what two or three court terms pretty right. recent right yeah Mm-hmm. I guess maybe only when they've I'm curious I'm sure court watchers have a sense of you know it was when Kennedy left or it was you know kind of some key thing uh interesting well you I'm, know I mean and cor- I think the other Supreme Court yeah and the other piece of it that I think has caught people's attention is just the willingness to use the shadow docket on even you know kind of high profile hot button cases because you'll remember they used the shadow docket to initially address the Texas bounty hunter abortion law right you know and if if you're at all concerned about perceptions of politicization of the court, you're going to want a lengthy opinion where you can kind of rest your laurels on, you know, you're overturning a huge precedent. So you want to have a long thing where you can point to areas in the law where you think you can do this. And they initially responded to it with a shadow docket opinion, an unsigned single paragraph that let the law stand, you know? So I think a lot with the Supreme Court that's good to keep in mind is just most of it goes unnoticed, except by kind of the elite law circles. And when it gets into the mainstream, it's because big cases that people really care about. So I think that has also kind of brought up the profile of the shadow docket usage, that they're not even just reserving it for kind of humdrum cases. It's, it's stuff that people are really passionate about. I guess the thing that always sort of I get a little confused about in, 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 in this with this topic is they've got a six to three majority. Yep. You know, why not let their freak flag fly, right? I mean, why not? Why why be bashful? No one can do anything about it. So why not just say like, uh, abortion is gross and evil. No, we're letting this, you know, we're letting this law stand. I mean, I, I think the answer must be they're not just concerned about the court and their precedents. They don't want to create friction for the Republican Party because they do have, you know, they they are up for election. I can't I can't really think of another. I mean, because I take your point. They want to avoid scrutiny, but why? You know, yeah, they're six no, to I three. Th- right. I think that's true. I mean, I think from kind of the peaks we see, I think justices are somewhat shockingly thin skinned for people who have like a very cushy lifetime appointment, and they don't right, like right, people right. saying mean things about them. Right. Um. And and I also think they do like to, ha- I don't know, to hide behind the veneer of like, we're just calling balls yeah. and strikes here. I mean, it, it's funny because a piece of this is Amy Coney Barrett gave a speech Monday from the, wait for it, Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, where she said, you know, they were talking about kind of the upcoming hot button cases on the docket, like abortion stuff, gun rights stuff. And she s- said, seeming to kind of acknowledge that people will perceive political bias behind those opinions, said, you know, just read the opinion. I would urge people to basically read it before you decide on the political background of these cases kind of thing. But then you have all these shadow docket cases, which as we're saying, there's no opinion to read, you know? So it's also just this kind of fake charade that they're, yeah, we're neutral. We're just umpires kind of interpreting the constitution. When in reality, it what it appears as though they almost can't wait to tear down the stuff they don't like. So they're not even waiting for it to get through the appellate court. They're like, we're going to interject now. Isn't there, I know that there, uh, Justice Alito in the last year or so has given a number of high profile speeches, which are, you know, highly political for as, you know, for the, what had been how justices normally, you know, kind of, uh, uh, 
speak in, in a public context, but actually calling out individual journalists. It was, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure it was by name, but quoting, you know, so it was, it was clearly directed to a known specific person. This person wrote this about me in the Atlantic or something like this. Um, and kind of, you know, you weren't fair when you said that and how dare you? And you're sort of like, dude, dude, like, like have a little, like, it's not self-respect exactly, but like, this is not what we expect from like a Supreme Court justice. Yep. We're kind of like, you know, you're you're flaming people on Twitter or something. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, this is this is the this is the flip side of you get to make decisions and no one can fucking do anything about it is you get to make the decisions in those robes in that big building and like, you know, you just keep your mouth shut. That's <laughs> yeah. the that's the other side of the bargain. Right. You don't like you I'm not even sure what the analogy is. But you don't do like little grievance lists about <laughs> yeah. journalists who's who's who were too mean to you. And we do you do what normal people do, which is like go on your evening run and rehearse in your head all the things you would say to that person if you could. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> all right. Okay. So should we do a Ukraine corner before we wrap up? Yeah, well I guess it's you know, we 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 focused on these other uh, other topics and I think, you know, um, Ukraine is clearly a you know this is not going away, mm -hmm. right? I mean, I I in in late February, I think pretty much everybody, certainly pretty much everyone in the expert group, thought this was going to end very quickly, and and there was maybe going to be a long tail where there was an insurgency over time and it went badly for Russia, but there was no question that Russia was going to overrun Ukraine very quickly. Then, and this was always, I think, very wishful thinking, uh, people thought, well, these sanctions and protests in Russia, maybe you know, there's going to be a coup against Putin, and clearly that is not happening. And the, as I said at the beginning, Russia had this very poorly thought out plan, which was basically, we're going to hit them everywhere and we're just going to kind of shatter the state. They're going to be shocked and awed and the government's going to fall and that'll be it. And that didn't happen. And kind of all, all the stuff that trans, that's transpired over the last month and a half. And now it's all going to kind of go back to the East, these, you know, this area, which Russia has been partially de facto occupying since 2014, and they're going to fight over that. And um, that is, that's going to be really hard fought. And, and um, I think everybody who's been watching this closely knows that Russia has had these really bad problems with command and control and logistics and all these kind of things, you know, just getting the food and fuel to the to the troops at the right places in the right times. But one of the benefits of operating in the east is that in that case, they're right up against their own border. Russia is. So, you know, they should be able to get food and, you know, food and gas to those people pretty easily and also concentrated. And one of the other problems was that if they were actually going to have a conventional conflict, you know, not just kind of freak everybody out and they give up in 24 hours, that they had spread their troops out over various different fronts and they were dispersed. And as we know from common sense, you have to kind of concentrate your forces, right? And, and so in this case, they would have all their forces concentrated. Um, and so, you know, we don't know, this is, this is, unfortunately, this is going to drag on for a really... I think for a really long time. And um, so we're going to have plenty opportunities to um, plenty of opportunities to talk about it. Is there a world where after Russia kind of concentrates its forces in the East like that, they're better able to kind of break through and make their way back to these kind of Western targets? You know, it's it is uh, it's possible, um, you know. Uh, Russia's big country, over time, they have a lot of resources to fall back on. I mean, one of the things that has been discussed a lot over the last week is that you have one country, Ukraine, that has lots of people, you know, lots of soldiers and potential soldiers. They don't have a lot of equipment. And Russia has lots of equipment for all these tanks you see being dragged by tractors by Ukrainian farmers. They've got so much more that they can replace all of that probably two or three times. They don't have a lot of soldiers, 
even though Russia is like three times the size of, uh, you know, population wise, it's three times as large because Ukraine is in a total war footing. You know, you are not allowed to leave Ukraine if you're between 18 and 60 and a man because everybody needs to be ready to fight. In Russia, they're trying to do this as the way we fought, you know, in Iraq. You know, people who are in the military, a lot of deployments, but for people who aren't in the military, it's life as usual, sort of, right? Um, and so that's the basic, over time, a lot of things could happen. Um, it seems unlikely that, uh, that that would happen in a future point, just because it went so badly the first time. And now Ukraine is being armed even more. And Ukraine's got lots of soldiers. So probably unlikely. Um, but, you know, nothing's, in, nothing's impossible. Um, so not, you know, uh, not clear. And, and one, you know, there was an interesting article that our, our colleague Josh Kravensky uh, messaged to me yesterday that backed up something that he mentioned to me that he had been hearing in recent weeks. And that was that after this war is over, regardless of, I mean, assuming there is still a functioning Ukrainian state, which I think is pretty clear, you know, we don't know if it'll lose some of its territory, but functioning Ukrainian state, that it's going to move to something like an Israel type model in the sense of a society where everyone serves in the military for a couple years. And especially for men, you're in the reserves until like middle age, basically. So an entire country, you know, so, so, an entire country under arms, ready to go to war kind of at any time. Um, and what that makes me, one of the many things that that makes me think is that Ukraine is only going to get stronger, right? I'm not saying they're going to get, you know, they're going to be the strongest military in the world or something, but they're going to, I mean, when this war is over, Europe and the US are going to be falling over themselves to, to sell or give weapons to Ukraine. And Ukraine's going to be falling over itself to get weapons from those people. So they're going to be getting lots more arm, you know, lots more stuff. They have the people. So this was kind of Russia's best chance and it didn't go well. So it seems unlikely to me that that would happen. I think the scenario that um, is more likely or is the sort of the you know, down scenario, if you are rooting for Ukraine, is that everything shifts over to the east now. They fight and fight, and it's very brutal, and lots of people get killed, but kind of, it's sort of a stalemate. And rather than the war ending, Russia just kind of stays there. And rather than saying, okay, this is part of Russia now, and it's like Crimean, kind of like, you be your country, we'll be ours, we have some of your land now. To keep with the sort of climate of provocation and occasional skirmishes so that Ukraine kind of can't get off the ground as a functioning country, to kind of keep it off balance forever. Um, I'm not saying that's likely, but I think that is sort of one of the down scenarios. Uh, because in some ways, you know, that's, that is what the story has been since uh, 2014, that Russia annexed Crimea. It was just kind of occupying without quite admitting it was occupying these eastern parts of the country and occasionally fighting, threatening to fight, you know, keeping them off balance, preventing them from moving on to being a normal country. And I think that that's in some ways, that's maybe the sort of the best case scenario for Russia that if they can't, um, if they can't have Ukraine be under their thumb, they can stop it from functioning as a normally functioning country and economy by just keeping it at a slow boil indefinitely. Hmm. Okay. So let's take this one question because it's related to Ukraine. Um, this is from Carl who says, before the start of the Ukraine war, Biden released information on what Russia was up to and what it was going to do. Some, if not all of this information came from our intelligence services. If these spy agencies are getting a lot of good intelligence out of Russia, has this prevented Putin from launching a cyber war against the West? I suspect those are largely different things, even though they may seem like they're the, you know, if we have such good intelligence, maybe we were shutting down their their cyber stuff. Um, the U.S., you know, we we it's a it's a it's a um, it's a standard uh, 
rubric of liberal politics. Oh, the NSA and the CIA, so much money, so little scrutiny. Where's all that money going? Well, they spend it on a lot of a lot of stuff. The U.S. knows a lot of stuff, right? Um, so it doesn't greatly surprise me that you know a mix of of electronic intelligence, some human intelligence, uh, that we know a lot of stuff that is going on. Um, so that part didn't surprise me greatly. Um, with the cyber stuff, again, I don't think those two things are running on the same tracks. But we also have a big cyber you know, part of the military that does offensive and defensive stuff. The reason that we are often seen as vulnerable is not that we're behind, just that we're, we're more computerized. We're more networked than a lot of other countries. So if you're doing cyber and you, and you can, um, you know, uh, debilitate the computer-rooted parts of an economy and society... We're a lot more dependent on that kind of stuff. Um, I don't think we know why that hasn't happened more. Um, I suspect, I mean, I suspect a lot of it is we shut a lot of it down, but I can't imagine that we shut everything down. And from what I can tell, there has not been anything touching the United States or Europe, like nothing. And I don't think we're that good. So I think that there must be some part of this that that has not been a lever that they have wanted to pull against the United States directly. But again, I think a lot of it is we put a huge amount into preparing for this kind of stuff through, you know, through the US military. Um, so it's not like they just have a free shot to kind of you know, bring down our electrical grid and stuff like that. Okie doke. Well, let me uh, remind everybody, the Josh Marshall Podcast brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off by using the promo code TPM. So give it a try. And also remember, we're coming to the end of our annual sign-up drive. If you are not a member of TPM, if you don't subscribe to TPM Prime, TPM Prime AF or Inside, and you listen to the podcast, please give it a thought. Please join us. It's it's how we fund this whole operation, and this podcast is uh, is is produced by TPM. So uh, if you're not a member, stop by the site and join us. We'd really appreciate it. And that is, I guess, that's it. All right. See you next. All right. Week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor in chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 